The tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa, and it's located in the city of Dubai. The building stands over 2,700 feet tall. Like, th- that is mind-boggling. It is over half a mile tall. Now, my first encounter with this tower was in the film Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Uh, in the film Ethan Hunt, he's played by Tom Cruise. He has to climb from the 123rd floor to the 130th floor uh, outdoors using these kind of like suction sticky gloves. And, and you know, Cruise, of course, uh, in, in the shooting was uh, held by a harness, um, but as usual, as he usually does, he does his own stunts in his films, and I just have to think that it must have been terrifying to be almost half a mile, you know, suspended. Yes, you're suspended, you know, you're not gonna fall, hypothetically speaking, but half a mile in the sky uh, in the air to do it, so. Um, you know, I did some Google, just, uh, Google research, the best kind of research about the structure, and I found some interesting statistics about this tower. If you laid all the materials from this tower end to end, it would stretch a quarter of the way around the world. The tower is also future forward. The Burj Khalifa collects 15 million gallons of water in a sustainable fashion each year. And they use that water for irrigation, for watering some of the landscaping, assisting their cooling system in the tower. I mean, this tower, this building is a marvel. It is a staggering display of human ingenuity and engineering. Now this morning, we are resuming uh, a series that I've called the tapestry. It's a series that is designed to take us through the narrative portions of the Bible. It's giving us God's ark of redemption. Now I've used this metaphor of a tapestry because a woven tapestry can tell us a story. What you see, if you're looking at a tapestry, what you see in front of you might be a concise and moving picture that is filled with colorful threads. But if you flip that fabric over, the back is a mess. Some threads have been cut, knotted, frayed, maybe connecting all the way across the tapestry that you don't see on the front what you see in the front is a beautiful picture. But in the same way, I think the scriptures give us an arc of a, a, a tapestry of God's plan for redemption, but when we focus in on some of the small elements, what we see is, is a mess. So the next step of this journey is looking at the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you guessed that get based on the, the intro with the Burj Khalifa, because like the Burj Khalifa, the Tower of Babel was a marvel of engineering in the ancient world. The Burj Khalifa is far taller, reaching to the heavens farther than the Tower of Babel could have ever dreamed. But God has yet to come down, as far as I know, and halted its progress in Dubai. What is it that separates these two examples is more than just the staggering height. So if you would open your Bibles, pull out your Bible apps, or you can use the Pew Bibles if you want. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 11. Now, where we left off sometime last year, I think it was last summer um, that we last were going through this tapestry series, uh, we, we left the story following the flood narrative, the flood stories of Noah, where God saved Noah and his family and had wiped out the remainder of wicked humanity off the earth, getting this fresh start. 
And then chapter 10 of Genesis tells us the descendants of Noah. You see a lot of these genealogies in the book of Genesis. Many generations later, and brings us to our story this morning. So follow along as I read Genesis 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So the opening verses set the stage for us. The people were united in their speech. They were sharing one language. They found a nice plot of land that they decided to settle in on and dig their roots down deep. Now, before we get to some of the problems with the tower, I want to highlight some of their experience that is positive. In verses 3 and 4, we see them talking about coming together, and they say, let us make a city and a name for ourselves. Now, when I read that, when I read that, it reminds me of, of the language the Scripture uses of God in Genesis 1.26, where God says, let us make man in our image and likeness. And specifically, when they talk about making a name for themselves, it is the same Hebrew word that is used between there and Genesis 1.26. And so I do think this is a good thing, and I'll I'll circle back on this a little bit more in a moment, but I think this is a good thing and it's to their credit because they're following the example, they're following the directives of their creator. Right after the creation of humanity, God said that the earth is ours to fill, to care for. This is the beginning of the call that I believe should shape our earthly existence, the creation of culture. Now, culture is not just something that exists. It's not, it is something that we create as humanity and that we shape. I really like Tim Keller's definition of culture making. He says this, quote, It is at least taking the raw materials God has made and rearranging it for human flourishing as God defines it. It's taking the raw materials that God has made and rearranging it for human flourishing. That was Adam and Eve's original task in the garden. Let me give you an example. You know, we know that there were a lot of trees in the garden. Let's say the first autumn happened and some of the leaves started falling down to the ground. Perhaps Eve took a few sticks, wrapped them with some horsehair to create a, you know, claw-like shape, 
And she found that she was able to more easily collect the fallen leaves. The rake was born. That is culture. That's an example of the creation of culture, taking those raw materials and rearranging them in a way that brings flourishing to humanity. Now, this is what we see the residents of Babel doing. They're using their basic materials. They're using mud and brick, stone and oil, and they're refashioning them in a way to build secure buildings. This technology allowed them to create homes that were safer, that were more resistant to the elements of nature, and this is a good thing. Remember, if we even think about the whole arc of the story of the Bible, that creation begins in a garden, but it doesn't end in a garden. It ends in a city, right? There's that natural arc of cultural and technological development that ought to happen as part of what it means to be made in the image of God, part of what it means for us to imitate our maker. These are all, I think, positive elements of the story. But I believe that verse 4 also gives us the problem with this development of culture. I'm going through my mind, uh, you know, Dr. Malcolm, whatever his name is, in Jurassic Park, right? Just because they should doesn't, or just because they could doesn't mean that they should. Verse 4 utilizes a Hebrew linguistic tool called a chiasm. Now, a chiasm is kind of like a a word pyramid where there's similarities on the, the passages or the themes that are at the bookends, and then if you move a, ch- you know, a step in, the, the second and the second to last have, have similarities, and you kind of keep moving until you get to the middle. Now, in, in verse 4, the chiasm is only two predominant themes, so it, it's less like a pyramid and more like a sandwich. So you have the bread on the outside, and we'll say you got the PB&J in the middle. Now, if we look at that, the outside of our sandwich describes the building of the city. Right? They build a city, Why? So that we won't be dispersed across the whole earth. Now, the issue is not necessarily that they just built a city. Just a moment ago, I said that that was in acting in alignment with the culture-making of God's kingdom. So it's not that they built a city, but it was the attitude with which they built it. They wanted to dig down their roots so that they would not be scattered across the face of the earth. Now, for many of you, that might be like, what's the big deal with that? I mean, Sarah and I have lived here in Swissvale for nearly 17 years. It's our desire to be embedded here in this community. But for these early humans, it's it's violating part of what God gave as a command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 28 after the creation of man and woman, the Bible says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them. Now, someone did say this wasn't a command. It doesn't say it's a command, but this is in the imperative, which to me, right, imperative is like giving someone a command. God says this to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve walking in their purpose as human beings, made in the image of God, what they were called to do was to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to multiply, filling the earth, and they were to act as God's representatives, creating culture uh, over creation. Now, I believe that had Adam and Eve never sinned, that they, you know, they would have started their family in the garden, 
The garden was that place where heaven and earth were in alignment. They overlapped. And when they were too big for the garden, what would they have done? They would have expanded the borders of that garden, striking out into new, untamed, raw territories to be ambassadors of God's good rule over the creation. Now, what we see in Babel is the opposite happening. They didn't want to scatter. They wanted to remain in the comfort of their city. The fact that this, that this group is described at the beginning of the chapter as having one language is important to remember in this. This wasn't about the pursuit of unity, but uniformity. Language is one of those elements that highlights differences in culture. I mean, for instance, you can see even cultures that are similar. Here in America, for the most part, not everybody, but predominantly we speak English. But even our vocabulary and spelling is different from the language of someone who was born and raised in the UK, the United Kingdom. They also speak English. In fact, sometimes we'll read, you know, Harry Potter and Austin's like, she spelled that wrong. No, it, it's, it's not how we spell color, for instance. You know, we don't put a U in it, but the, the Brits do. How much more so for languages that were developed independently from one another? Right? As these groups, if they had gone out and scattering the way that they were supposed to, they would have developed independent languages, celebrations, foods, you name it. Diversity is what they would have, it would have created diversity. And diversity, I believe, is important to the kingdom of God. When Paul was writing to the church of Ephesus, he's explaining how this mystery of the gospel blew his mind. And then he defines what the mystery is, that God was now including Gentiles in the chosen people of God. Now, for a good Jew, that would have been, in the first century AD, that was mind-blowing for them. Because for 2,000 years, they had been told, we are God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. And now, all of a sudden, all these people who were perceived as enemies were God's chosen people. But he tells us why. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, he says, so that, right, because through the church, this unification of these disparate groups, he says, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Right, that word manifold, think of a diamond with all of its facets. The beauty in a diamond is not in any kind of uniformity, but that there are so many different angles that when a light, a beam of light strikes it, it is a brilliant sight. So too, I believe, that diversity shows the brilliance of God's wisdom and glory. And we see so many places in Scripture that this, this points to this. I, I, one of my favorites is, is Isaiah 60. Uh, uh, Richard Mao wrote a book called When the Kings Come Marching In, and Isaiah 60 is about all these pagans, right? All these non-Jews bringing their best cultural goods, the ships of Tarshish and the cedars of Lebanon and all these things to, to bring to God their, their best things that their culture has to offer for the glory of God. Therefore, Babel, their refusal to scatter, their refusal to fill the earth, to subdue it, to create these diverse cultures is in its own process problematic. So that's, I think, point one where you see that there is a problem. Right? That was the bread of our sandwich. Let's look at the P, B, and J. The middle of verse four says that they wanted to build a tower to make a name for themselves. 
Now, I actually read an article from Christianity Today earlier this year that had some really interesting insights into this passage. Uh, it, was, it was actually written by John Walton. I'll, I'll uh, quote him later. He's a, for those of you that listen to the Holy Post, he's a regular contributor there. He's a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton, uh, Wheaton School, whatever there, Wheaton Christian School. I don't, you know what I'm talking about. But he says that their desire to make a name for themselves is not a wholly problematic desire. In fact, he argues that this is quite a, an honorable endeavor. Now, all the times that I've read this, that's not necessarily how I have seen it. But he, I think, rightfully points out that this language of making a name is used very positively both in the scriptures as well as in some of the other ancient Near Eastern texts, like the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, if you've heard of that one. In the Bible, we see this, not only that God makes a name for himself, which clearly is a positive thing, but he also does it for others. Just a teaser for next week, we see that exact same phrase about making a name for someone used of God when he calls Abram in Genesis chapter 12. So God's judgment does not fall on them because they were trying to make a name for themselves. Now, the other way that this passage is misunderstood as it comes to this tower is that this tower is seen as, as reaching to the heavens, is seen as a conduit for the people to reach up to heaven. But this story is not about humans storming the heavens in the way that if, you, you know, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, the Titans try to take over Mount Olympus. That's not what's going on in the story. And the key to interpreting it is in the form that this tower would have taken. Now, if you Google Tower of Babel and you search for images, this is what you're going to find, things that look like this, right? These, these tall, circular towers, you know, it kind of reminds me of like the Leaning Tower of Pisa or, you know, if, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you know, probably a better example, Minas Tirith, right? The city of Gondor in there. But this is not what that tower, I mean, I, I feel like this reminds me of Renaissance. This is like post-Jesus uh, architecture, if you will. The tower in this time period, you know, roughly a little bit before 2000 BC, would have been something called a ziggurat. Now, ziggurats were kind of like ancient pyramids of Mesopotamia, this area that, you know, what they called the ancient Near East, whereas th this all takes place in modern-day Iraq, the story. And most scholars believe that this is the type of form the tower would have taken. These ziggurats were used for religious purposes. Now, right next to a ziggurat, right next to one of these pyramids, they would also build a temple to a god or a goddess. And so the purpose of these towers were meant to be a structure that the deity could descend from heaven and go right to his or her temple. In, in the words of John Walton, he, I, he said, quote, they were not built for people to ascend to heaven, but rather for God to descend from heaven. You see, in ancient pagan worship, the gods and goddesses were dependent upon humanity. Humans were created to do all that labor-intensive stuff that the gods and goddesses didn't want to concern themselves with. And so, as a result, when humans would offer some type of offering of food, a burnt sacrifice to the god or goddess, that's how they would provide their, their needs of the gods. In other words, how the gods would have their sustenance. You see this in a, a text called the Enuma Elish, which 
describes after the, the flood narrative, and you know, um, I guess that might have been Gil- the Epic of Gilgamesh, after, when he makes an offering to the gods, again, this is pagan, it says that the gods hovered around it like flies. That's the language they use. Because they had waited a couple months to be able to eat and feast. The pagan god would come down the ziggurat, be worshipped in its temple, and have its needs satiated. Now, this is important because the belief in the ancient world was that if humans would provide for the gods, that they would receive the gods' blessings, that their cities would flourish. It was a transactional relationship. The human gives, and then the god responds. So the idea in Babel was that people would create a pathway for Yahweh to come down and feast on the provisions that they offer, but then that God would be beholden to them. So the problem with this whole situation is not that they're trying to make a name for themselves, but they were trying to do it in a way that exploited their relationship with God. The issue with this tower was not that they were trying to storm the gates of heaven, not that they were trying to gain independence from God, but they wanted to get God indebted to them so that they could wield his blessing. It was a tool of attempted control. Now, I hope you can see why that's problematic. Not not only did they miscalculate that God needs their worship to thrive, but Yahweh cannot and will not be controlled by anyone. Now, when we get to verse 5 in this passage, we should see some irony in this, right? Because they're constructing this tower. And what does God do? He comes down. He descends. He does precisely what they wanted him to do in the ziggurat. But he comes down for his own purposes, not theirs. We see his response in verse 7. He confuses their language so that they scatter. He's propelling them to do what they should have done from the beginning. And the name of the place is Babel, modern-day Babylon. Well, I guess not modern-day Babylon, but Babylon that you see in other places in the Old Testament, which has similar sounds in Hebrew to the word confused. If you're reading the ESV, there's a little footnote that says that. God brings a judgment which is meant to reroute them back on a path that is in more alignment with the work that he desires that they do. Now, before I get to some application, I want to give you two brief but I think, important biblical connections that flow out of this story uh, before we move on. And the first is that this story in our tapestry that we're looking at is crucial to what comes next. Because getting us to this point, we're only 11 chapters into the Bible. Chapters 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, God shows that God creates the universe and that he is with creation. He is with humanity in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 sets up the fall, that that link between God and his people, God and creation, has been severed. Now what we see in Genesis chapter 11, in the story that we're looking at this morning, it displays an initiative that is launched by humans to reestablish God's presence on the earth. That's what they're trying to do, get God to come back and hang out with them again. But we see that this is rejected by God. Now what we're going to see beginning next week, which is really the, 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 the beginning of this arc of redemption is that in Genesis chapter 12, God launches his own plan to reestablish that relationship on his terms. This is something that we see in the Old Testament time and time again called a covenant. And that covenant is through a man named Abram, later Abraham, and his descendants. And there'll be some more to come on that next week. But another link to the story happens thousands of years after this, these events. 
following the death and the resurrection of Jesus, 50 days after Christ's resurrection, the disciples are gathering in a closed room. The Holy Spirit descends. This is Pentecost. What's the signature element, the signature sign of that miracle, of that filling of the Holy Spirit? It's that the disciples start preaching the gospel in different languages. That all these people who are from, you know, a diverse set of countries that have come to Jerusalem for, for a feast hear the gospel in their own languages. And I think this is important. I think this is a link to Babel because we see a unification of languages in the communication of that ultimate restoration of God's covenant with humanity. That link is reestablished. Not that God would dwell in our city, not that God would be controlled by us, but now God dwells within each one of us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit descends upon us. So I think those are two links that, that are important to kind of see, connect those dots, those strings in the back, if you will, of the tapestry that connects things that you don't necessarily see at first glance as being related. So how are we to understand this story from over 4,000 years ago in our world today? The Tower of Babel was humanity's attempt to create a conduit for God's involvement in their lives, but on their terms. Now, applying this to ourselves, how do we try to create sacred spaces? Do we, when we create those sacred spaces, is it to make God's name great or our own? Now, and when I say sacred space, I, I mean, I don't just mean churches. Of course, it can mean a physical building. But what about the, our creation or our cultivation of podcasts that we listen to? Or... The, the type of social media presence that we want to put out, the algorithms that we calculate? Are we more focused on the glory of God or are we more focused on our own advancement or elevation in the public eye? We cannot provide meaning by our own effort and for our own benefit. The scriptures remind us that the only way to this goal is through proper relationship with God. Right? God rejects any kind of transactionalism, but this is rampant in the way that we practice our spirituality. Right? This Tower of Babel is about transactionalism. The God comes down, benefits from humanity, and then blesses humanity. We carry this some 4,000 odd years later. Right? We think that if we choose the good in life, that God is somehow obligated to reward us where we try to bargain with God, right? God, if you would just see me through this tough time, then I promise that I'll go to church next week, or I promise that I'll read my Bible every day. Fill in the blank. What are those deals, those transactions that you're trying to make with God to get him to act on your behalf the way that you want him to? They're all means of control. It puts us in a position of authority, negotiating for our own advancement, our own flourishing. The problem with the ancient pagan religions, which seems to spill over in this encounter in Babel, is they felt that they could control God by providing resources, by offerings that they thought he needed. But it's a gross miscalculation. I am the one who is in God's debt, not the other way around. Any system that tries to exert control over God and how he moves in our lives is idolatry. It's one of the reasons that Babel was rejected. 
God has come down through the person of Jesus Christ. He has reestablished that relationship that was broken in the fall. The New Testament uses language of reconciliation for our mutiny. It describes our prior condition as dead in our sins. There is not much that a dead person can do to advocate for themselves. The grace of God is not that he takes a bad person or a marginally good person and makes them better. You know, not that he takes someone who tries really hard and makes them good, but that he takes a dead person and gives them new life. In all of this, God is the giver. We are the receiver. And anything that tries to, to flip those roles is defiance. God is worthy of our worship, full stop. Not just because of what we might get out of it. So as we consider our methods of worship, whether it be in church activities or our routines at home or our routines at the office, in the car, we should think about them. We should reflect. Are they for God's glory or are they for my own, or my own control or my desire for an easy life? Do we go through certain routines with a desire to try to force God's hand to move on our behalf? God cannot and will not be controlled. Instead, God has provided the means for that relationship to be restored on his terms through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so like I already alluded to next week, we're gonna start looking into what shape that plan begins to take. Because right there in Genesis 12, we see lots of foreshadows. It's hard to not just steal my own thunder for next week. But we see all kinds of foreshadowings of, of what God's plan was to come. So as we go about this week, um, I want to give you some questions as I always do. Uh, I'll put them on Facebook. I'll put them on the website. So opening, we open with this theme of uh, culture making. Right? That is the call that God puts upon us, a way that we imitate our creator. So how can you participate in the command in Genesis 1.28 to create and cultivate culture? It's a mouthful, lots of C's. Create and cultivate culture that reflects God's glory. And if this is something you want uh, additional information on, phenomenal book. It's in my top five books of all time that I've read is a book called Culture Making by Andy Crouch. Uh, He's my man crush, Andy Crouch is. He used to edit Christianity Today. Uh, He now works for some nonprofit that does leadership development in the the, um, marketplace, but uh, lives in Philadelphia area. Uh, Yes, so how, how are we leaning into that? What are we doing? Second is this. What are some links? I gave you a couple of the links, but how do you see the, a link between these stories of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 and then many, many pages later, Acts, tw- Acts 2, uh, the, the story of Pentecost? And the one that's most convicting for me, what behaviors, because I bet we, I'm willing to bet we all do this in some manner, what behaviors do you use to, I put inadvertently, try to control God? Now, there might be times that you're intentionally trying to control God, but I would, I would argue for most of us, it's inadvertent. We're not doing it on purpose, but we have this kind of twisted way of thinking where it's, it, it's, it's what I like to call Christian karma, right? We think that if we put good in, we are owed good out and vice versa, um, but that's not, that's not what the Bible teaches. So how are we trying to control God with how we live? Let's pray, and then we'll uh, close with one final song.
Lord, as I think about the Tower of Babel, as I think back through the narrative portions of Scripture, uh, so many times <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty. That it's like those knuckleheads, it's clear what they shouldn't have done. But I know that if I was in that situation, I probably would have behaved similarly. I know that as I'm in my situations, I do behave similarly. That I try to provide avenues that I can control how you treat me. That I can try to preserve my life in safety and comfort. Not bad desires to have, but whenever I'm seeking to exert any authority over you, it is idolatry, it is disobedient, defiant. So Lord, help me to learn what it means. Help all of us to learn what it means to make a name for ourselves by magnifying and making your name great. Lord, knowing that we're going to go through seasons of doubt and seasons of difficulty, But Lord, that in all of that, you are not beholden to us, but we are beholden to you. And may we cling to you in those difficult times, holding fast as we we shared this morning from Isaiah Isaiah 48, that you are for us and not against us, that you help us and you sustain us in those times. May we give of ourselves for your kingdom, not our own. In Christ's name, amen.